championship on the line right here. He's going for the corner. He's got it. Hello and welcome to 4th and 5, your Longhorn Nation podcast. I'm your host, Will Bazer, and I'm joined alongside by no one this week. Darius left me again. He is pretty busy this month. So today, I'm going to be going solo. We're going to try out an entire episode of me going solo. Let me know how it goes in the tweets and the comments, wherever you can find me. Because I, you know, we'll see if we can do this more often or if not. But today I want to stick on some football stuff here. I want to go over the past four-game stretch for Texas as things are starting to really find a groove. Yes, I know that four-game stretch includes Oklahoma, but that was sort of a turning around point, especially for this defense. And we're going to go ahead and take a look at this defense, talk about what we see in this defense and what the improvements are, and our thoughts on these new defensive coaching hires a little bit over halfway through the season as well as go through the offensive coaches and the offense. And I really want to take a look at the West Virginia game because I think that that is a big turning point for this offense and potentially what they could become and how they could really get into their groove. Then I guess we also have to talk about Tom Herman and his press conference on Monday because that's turned into a hot-button issue and people want to hear about it, I guess. And I'll talk about what was happening there and... I'll get into that later on in the show, but right now, let's go ahead and get right into this past three to four game stretch for Texas. And I'll start off with the defense here, because when you talk about the pandemic and its effect on this season, you're going to get two things, excuses and reasons. One of the key things that it will take for analyzing teams this year is understanding teams using the pandemic as an excuse or legitimate reasons that the pandemic affected a team. For the defense... The pandemic affecting the team was a reason for the defense's slow start this season. This is something that I've been talking about since the TCU game, which is the defense looking incrementally better game by game by game. And since Oklahoma, even during Oklahoma, they took a huge step up. They continue to get better because they learn things they never got to do in practice before the season by practicing it under fire in season, Texas's defense went through a hell for the first two, three games. And a quick shout out to my guy, CJ Vogel, for pulling these numbers out. And one of the main things I want to look at here from his numbers is missed tackles. If you look at the missed tackles for the first three games of the year, you had nine missed tackles on 73 snaps, 19 missed tackles against Texas Tech on 79 snaps, TCU, 15 missed tackles on 85 snaps, and OU, 16 missed tackles on 92 snaps. There's one that you can see in those numbers that I've talked about right there on face value. Those sound awful, right? But they keep on incrementally getting better. If you want to break it down into fractions, Texas Tech, 0.24 missed tackles per snap. TCU, 0.17 missed tackles per snap. OU, 0.17. And then you get the Baylor and Oklahoma State and West Virginia, and those numbers keep on going down. You go... 8 missed tackles on 68 snaps for Baylor, 9 missed tackles on 96 snaps for Oklahoma State, 11 missed tackles on 76 snaps for West Virginia. These numbers keep on going down, or at least staying below a pretty good average. And you can really see how this and other improvements on the defense has affected things like yards per carry, where Texas 
against Texas Tech had a 4.58 yards per carry. TCU, 4.45. OU, 3.78. And then Baylor, 3.05. Oklahoma State, 2.55. West Virginia, 1.65. It is just every statistical category for this defense that Texas fans were hemming and hawing about after the first three games, even four games, has just steadily been decreasing. And really, this is probably going to be the first time I do big props to Chris Ash in this defense because this defense has really turned the corner in this season. And again, it's a point to Tom Herman's point and a point I had earlier where, yes, the offseason really did hurt this team. Offense is another story, but defense especially because this was an entirely new defensive concept for this team. The fact that they had no time to learn it did not help against other teams like Oklahoma State or Oklahoma or you know TCU or whoever who have already learned these systems through years of practice or you know season beforehand even. Texas didn't get that benefit, and it showed in the first three games. First four games, I guess, if you include UTEP. But now... They are starting to get in their groove. And another place you're really seeing this, and one that I've, you know, that's really been obvious on the screen and when you watch film is this red zone defense. And I think this has become the defense's identity is this bend, don't break. When I went to go and look at stats to figure out, okay, how good is this Texas red zone defense actually? I found that they are much better than I actually thought they would be. They are the 16th ranked red zone defense in the nation. That is up there with Notre Dame, Alabama, Cincinnati, teams like that. That is where Texas is on this list. And they are only allowing 4.4 points per red zone visit. So under a touchdown, just over a field goal. That is huge, especially in the Big 12, where field goals are wins in the red zone. Huge wins in the red zone. You win the Big 12 by three and outs, field goals, and turnovers. In this past three stretch, they've been giving up more field goals than touchdowns against teams like Oklahoma State and Oklahoma, which is huge. Huge. And on top of that, while the past game has been much maligned by Texas fans, it's been pretty decent over this past three-game stretch, even four-game stretch against Oklahoma. Again, Oklahoma's numbers are skewed because you went to four overtimes, but... Aside from Tylen Wallace pretty much exerting his will on the team, which I think was game plan for because you were allowing the pass to take away the run. You know, if Sanders beat you through the air, so be it. When it comes to the numbers, when it comes to what they've been doing, they've been pretty respectable. You know, Chris Brown, BJ Foster, Josh Thompson, and Deshaun Jameson all had some pretty decent games over the past four game stretch. I mean, Deshaun Jameson had his best game against Oklahoma, and he's only allowed 10 completions on 20 targets over the past four games. Josh Thompson, over the same time span, has allowed 12 completions on 18 targets. And while that might not sound as good as Deshaun Jamison, four of those completions came from Tylen Wallace, where he had no help over the top. B.J. Foster and Chris Brown. I mean, Chris Brown, talk about a guy who has had a phenomenal year. The guy has probably went from not drafted to maybe third round, fourth round pick in this next draft because of the year he has had, and especially this past four-game stretch. B.J. Foster as well has really taken over that deep safety role. 
And on top of that, the spur position, which has been tasked a lot with the shallow game, like holding the edge in the flats at times versus run in the pass, both Chris Adamora and Anthony Cook have done phenomenal jobs there. You see them constantly taking out the running back on a swing route or taking out a loose wide receiver behind the line or in the flats. And Chris Adamora against Oklahoma State had seven tackles, seven solo tackles. Those guys, that position has been doing a really good job at a very, very tough role for defensive backs. And, you know, Josh Thompson has been consistently above average when it comes to coverage. You know, aside from the Oklahoma State game against Oklahoma, he actually did very well, according to Pro Football Focus. Baylor, he did very, he did good. West Virginia, he did good. Same thing for Deshaun Jameson. Same thing for B.J. Foster. Same thing for Caden Stearns. All these guys have done pretty decent jobs over the past four games. However, I'm still not convinced by the secondary's performance. You know, I haven't been going up against the best competition, aside from Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. West Virginia and Baylor really skew it because they're both not very good passing teams. And Caden Stearns, guys like him, have shown to be liabilities when it comes to man-on-man coverage. And especially Caden Stearns, it's been surprising. Uh, You know, I really do like the guy, but in a league where teams like to take advantage of one-on-one matchups, it seems like he's lost a step in his game given all of those injuries over the past two, three years. He's just been... It's just hard to see for the guy, but again, he's become a liability when it comes to one-on-one coverage, and he's not the only one. If a team is able to isolate him, it is a problem, like what West Virginia did on the early 38-yard pass for the touchdown that was dropped, or, you know, dropped touchdown. I guess it wasn't a touchdown, but it could have tied the game in the third quarter. I think for a lot of these defensive backs, you constantly see them getting beat over the top, and it's not going to be pretty once you come up against a team who can actually take advantage of that, like I guess Oklahoma State did to you. Like Texas was heavily helped out by the fact that West Virginia and Baylor really didn't have any burners, which allowed them to play a bit more freely on the edges uh, in terms of press coverage and catching up with these guys. So I think the secondary's performance has been very average, which with the front seven you have, which I'll get into in a second, is enough. More than enough, honestly. But there's been a lot of consternation within the Longhorn fan base around playing the hands versus playing the ball. Because a lot of times, you know, I get it. You're you're upset because the players don't get their heads around and which could avoid a foul or even cause a pass breakup or an interception. And then you as a fan hear, well, they don't play the ball. Or they're taught not to play the ball. And you're thinking, well, of course there is a reason why they're getting beat over the top all the time. Because they're not even turning their heads around, or they're taught not to turn their heads around. However, the fact isn't that Texas exclusively plays the hands, which has been something that has been parroted by people on Twitter and even the guys on the broadcast. There are many instances where they play the ball as well. Hell, Jameson almost had a pick against West Virginia when he played the ball. He got absolutely mossed, but that happens sometimes as a defensive back. So when Chris Ash or Jay Valai says, it's teaching these guys to play the hands, what exactly is going on there? It's really referring to a threshold. 
of when you play the hands over when you play the ball. This threshold is kind of like a philosophical debate amongst defensive back coaches and there are advantages and disadvantages to leaning one way or the other. Chris Ash pretty much delineated the line for this Texas defense in a recent press conference saying, you never look back for the ball when you don't have vertical control of the wide receiver. If I'm not on top of them and I look back, what do I naturally do? I slow down. And when I slow down, what happens naturally? I've lost the receiver and separation occurs. If I'm on top of the guy and I'm in a good position to defend, then I'm going to turn and locate the ball. After Chris Ash said this, I went and talked to a few of my friends who have been defensive back coaches or are defensive back coaches to get their perspective on this and understand this philosophy a bit more. And this philosophy is one of the, actually, it might not seem like it is gaining ground again and becoming part of a new way of, of teaching defensive backs techniques. If you're not over top of the wide receiver, you're probably going to give up ground if you turn around and look, allowing for separation, that's just going to get you beat even more. So breaking this down even a bit more, when you're supposed to play the hands is in a few situations. When you are the trail guy in coverage, in zone coverage or in man coverage, or when you're tied with the wide receiver or get beat by the wide receiver in man coverage. On the other side of this, when you play the ball is when you are in zone coverage and you're not the trailing guy or when you're in man coverage and you're over the top, or you are just in perfect position where you are chest to chest with the wide receiver, so much so where both players are looking back at the ball. To break this down even further, I can give you all a few instances of these different scenarios. So the one to Sean Jamison that I talked about earlier where he's in cover two, he jams at the line to keep the wide receiver from giving an outside release, sinks back, he has help over the top, he can keep his eyes in the backfield, in zone. And that resulted in an almost pick. Two more of the differing scenarios played out in the first red zone stop for Texas against West Virginia, where you had Jalen Green on third and one in the 16-yard line. He played his man so well, he was able to be chest-to-chest with him. And when Jared Dagey tried to throw a fade route, Jalen Green was able to run his guy out, all the while keeping his head back towards the ball. And then on the very next play, You saw the scenario where you have to play hands, where on fourth down, Daggy threw a ball behind the defense to a wide-open tight end. B.J. Foster was trailing him, so instead of turning around and looking for the ball that would have passed right over his head, Foster ripped through the tight end's hands and stopped the touchdown. And then on the very next red zone stop for Texas, you saw the scenario where you're over the top of the wide receiver in man coverage like Chris Ash was talking about, with Chris Brown, where Chris Brown was able to play the ball because he was over top and stop the potential winning drive for West Virginia and give Texas the win to seal the game. So basically, all this to say is I think the majority of the defensive backs are almost there when it comes to playing the way the coaches were hoping to see or at least learning it. The development is not quite there. You're still seeing issues here and there where the defensive backs aren't putting themselves in a good position to be over top of the wide receiver or allowing them to play the ball, but there's progress there. There is from the beginning of the year to now. However, it has been a lot slower than that of the defensive line and linebackers, probably in part due to the fact that Oscar Giles is still there at the defensive line and that's helping out the linebackers. I'll get into that later on the show, but you're dealing with different terminology, different techniques, 
and an entirely different philosophy of how you play your position as a cornerback and as a safety in this defensive secondary. And because of all these new things, you're seeing, you know, miscommunications between in the interplay between the the cornerbacks and the safeties. And I think that is a big reason why you're seeing the Longhorns get hurt on these deep shots or just plain getting beat because that's what happens in the Big 12. But man, speaking of the defensive line and the linebackers, man, it's been fun to watch the turnaround there over the past four games. And it's difficult to really turn a team around when you don't have an offseason. You're trying to instill an entirely new defense. However, Oscar Giles and Coleman Hutzler deserve some sort of an award for this season. And really, Oscar Giles. I mean, that dude in general should just never be allowed to leave Texas ever again. Ever again. The dude, every single time he has been at Texas, I guess two times, has just turned out monsters on the defensive line. He's able to evaluate talent. He's able to recruit the guys. And he's able to develop them. This defensive line is so deep at this point due to his efforts. And the defensive line is becoming what it was promised to be at the beginning of the season, which was elite. Now, again, it wasn't elite from the beginning because these are three-down linemen who are trying to learn to play in a four-down lineman system without any practice, really. But man, it is starting to pay off as these guys learn how to play in this four-down lineman defense. You've seen guys like Tavondre Sweat. I mean, he is a monster and will be battling for Big 12 Defensive Lineman of the Year after Coburn wins it, which after Osai wins it, which was after uh, who Omena who won it, which was after Puna Ford won it. And then after Tavondre Sweat, you're lucky, probably looking at Collins or whoever's next, really. This guy is building up a dynasty at Defensive Line. And it's just so much fun to watch this. Even guys who you weren't really expecting to have big seasons this year, like Mora Ojimo and Taquan Graham and Alfred Collins, have been having pretty decent seasons, really. And especially a guy like Alfred Collins, wow. And Ojimo, wow. Taquan Graham, while he had a quiet start, he this dude has been very, very solid in the middle at a position that really doesn't fit him. So props to Giles, props to Mark Hagan there too for building this defensive line so far. And all of those guys have really helped out Joseph Osai have big games like he did against Oklahoma State because if these teams aren't avoiding Joseph Osai like the plague that he is, then the rest of that defensive line is having a good game. It's really made a guy like Coleman Hutzler's job very easy as the co-defensive coordinator and linebackers coach. Because when you're giving guys to develop and shape and they don't have to worry about going through the hardships of taking on an offensive lineman every single play, it makes their jobs a whole lot easier. Props to Chris Ash and Coleman Hustler for convincing DeMarvin Overshone to move to linebacker, which has actually been a very good move for him. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? But, you know, it's not the flashy position, and a lot of guys in Texas don't want to be linebackers. They want to be the glamour position of safety or cornerback or whatever because that's what gets the girls, right? The the stigmatism around linebackers is those guys with the big, bulky neck guards who are in the middle and in the trenches, right? They have to hit the running backs. They don't get to prance around with the wide receivers. Now, 
it's again, it's hard to say developmentally wise how good these coaches are so far because really we have only seen them for six, seven weeks and really not a full offseason. But I think you can say Coleman Hustler is doing a phenomenal job so far, especially with a guy like DeMarvin Overshone, where he, this is a guy who's never played the position before. He has the tools, which is pretty much what you want in most recruits or, you know, a guy who is getting used to the speed of the game and doesn't, you know, doesn't know the position at this level. DeMarvin Overshone over the past four games has just been an absolute stud. And you look at the missed tackles he had at the beginning of the season, right? UTEP, he had one, but then Texas Tech, five. TCU, five. OU, four. But then something clicked for him. Baylor, zero. Oklahoma State, two. West Virginia, one. The game has slowed down for DeMarvian Overshone. And because of that, DeMarvian Overshone has had stats like Oklahoma, 11 tackles, one tackle for loss, a pick. Baylor, five tackles, one pass breakup. Oklahoma State, Five tackles, one tackle for loss, one forced fumble, one pass breakup. West Virginia, eight tackles, one sack, two tackles for losses, and a first fumble and a pass breakup. The dude will be a high draft pick in 2022, large part because of the efforts of Chris Ash and Coleman Hutzler, in large part because of the defensive line he's working behind, and in large part because of the absolute athleticism he has. Now, over the offseason, put 10 more pounds on him next year, again, High draft pick in the 2022 draft. Probably looking at a day two guy in next year's draft. You know, if you want to look at what he can do this year, I think the sack against West Virginia is not just a good thing for the stat book, but I think it's an indicative of the fact that Chris Ash has finally figured out how to deploy this ranging athletic linebacker in the blitz. Overshone came through that A-gap completely untouched. You did not see that with Todd Orlando ever. And that's what you get when you mix incredibly athletic players in a simplified defense. That is what you wanted with Chris Ash. That is what you're getting. And that is a huge, huge proof positive that this has been working so far. And you can also look at Jawan Mitchell. He went from a serviceable player to an actually solid linebacker. I mean, the, the stat line is better than almost kind of, you know, arguably better than what DeMarvin Overshone has put up over the past four games. And again, probably helps to have that defensive line in front of him. He has been able to take care of filling gaps, which was something that we really didn't think was going to be a thing for him this year. As a middle linebacker, I was afraid that he was going to be Gary Johnson without Malik Jefferson. But he has turned into somebody who is much better than that. Again, I think if you're looking at these hires over the past over this past offseason, you really had to give credit to Tom Herman for making the call to bring in Chris Ash, which was, again, very highly criticized and have Chris Ash bring in his guys like Coleman Hutzler, like Jay Valai, like himself, like Mark Hagan, and then keeping Oscar Giles, which was an easy call after Oscar Giles brought in Alfred Collins and Vernon Broughton. Now on to the offense. On to the offense. And offense, offense, offense. That has been something that has been very difficult to watch. I mean... Right now, they are 80th in the country in terms of offensive success rate, which means getting the yards that they need to get per down. It has just been a struggle for this offense. The Tom Tom Herman side of the ball. The rushing game has not been what he wants it to be. It is dead set average, and the passing game has been way below average. 
this offense is average, is the best way to put it. It's not terrible. It is average. Now, they've been able to win out games because of the crazy good defense they've put together. I mean, top 30 defense in the nation. They've been trying to figure out what to do with this offense over the past two years. And going back to my original point, which was talking about understanding pandemic affecting a team or a coach being a reason or excuse, blaming the offense being bad this year on the pandemic is an excuse. Yes, they did change a few guys on the staff for the other side of the ball. They brought in a new tight end coach, a new wide receivers coach, a new quarterback coach. I mean, that quarterback coach is now the offensive coordinator. However, and while yes, these new coaches might not know the personnel as well as they could, offense is still Tom Herman's wheelhouse. He should know the personnel. He should be able to understand which personnel work best in which situations and which sets, which personnel sets, you know, 12, 11, 10, 32, whatever, works best with his offense and the personnel that he has. The issues with the offense, it doesn't take an offseason to fix them. It takes understanding who you have as your personnel and understanding what you need to do with that personnel. Taking a look in the mirror and saying, maybe 12 personnel isn't the best idea. Maybe we shouldn't be using a zone as much if we don't know how to run it. So it's not like the defense where they're trying to instill an entirely different technique, an entirely different defense in total. It's more or less the same offense. So while, yes, they're probably, you know, the first two weeks, maybe you're a little slow. It shouldn't have taken until West Virginia to really figure out your offense. Now, the West Virginia game wasn't great. The offense was anemic. However, there is some stuff in there that actually got me pretty happy coming away from that win, which is, funnily enough, what everybody's been yelling at them to do. First off, they didn't use 12 personnel all that much. Jared Wiley was being used in a lot of 11 and 10 personnel. Now, Jared Wiley being used for the bulk of the snaps, first off, is a good thing because Herman loves to play favorites. It has just been something that Herman does. He, doesn't, he acts like he does a meritocracy, it's a lot of playing favorites. And while he is not a tremendous blocker, he gives the offense another dimension which defenses have to account for. You know, it makes up for the blocking and ability that he might have and more by giving the defenses something else to think about. Because of this, I think Texas is going to be able to very easily sneak him downfield on a seam or up the middle and will catch defenses off guard because, I mean, Oklahoma does it all the time. Tom Herman did it all the time when he was at UFH. It's something that, you know, having a big, athletic, pass-catching tight end who can block a bit, that's what you do all the time, and it catches teams off guard every single time. Now, he's not going to be playing this week, right, because he's hurt in his shoulder, but get him back into it when you come when it comes to Kansas State and Iowa State. Keep on doing that, and it's going to work. It's going to work. We also saw a new wrinkle in the run game this week beyond the breakout of Bajon Robinson. We saw Texas go away from the zone running scheme or not use it as much in favor of a gap scheme runs, which meant counters, powers, and a lot of pulling linemen, which are all big features of the gap scheme run game. And really what the gap scheme run game is, man, old school run game, right? The scheme is a low maintenance intuitive and efficient way to run the ball. 
There's not a lot of extra stuff going on here. There's five parts to it, maybe six parts to it, with pretty common terminology like singe, wrap, back, gap, wham, A spot, and B spot. And then you can interchange a lot of these different parts to make up a different, lot of different plays. In short, what this means is they simplified the offense for the offensive line. You are wondering, why does this offensive line look so much better against West Virginia than they did against literally any team over the past two years? That is why. They simplified the offense. Instead of running the more heady zone blocking scheme on a number of plays, they basically went big on big with a more intuitive style of man-on-man gap scheme where you get this guy, you get this guy, you run here, block here, and the running back find the hole. This allowed for the movements that a guy like Mike Yursich wants and builds in read plays for the running backs, which is why you saw John Robinson break it to the outside a ton and really take off. With this simplification, this allowed the offensive line to act rather than think and opened up the run game, which in turn opened up the pass game, which meant that pass protections against one of the most dangerous defensive linemen duos in the conference actually looked pretty damn solid. Yes, there were a few times where they messed up on their assignments and Sam Ellinger bore the brunt of that, but still, Sam Ellinger had clean pockets for almost the entire game, and by clean, I mean the guy was standing there for like five to seven seconds just waiting for guys to open. He had all day long, and on top of that, the offensive line, I don't know how many pancakes they had, but it was a sure hell of a lot more than what they've had probably the majority of this year, and this is good and bad, right, because Why did it take so long to figure out that maybe they should simplify this offensive line? Why can't Herb Hand teach Tom Herman's zone run game that he loves so much? You know, why did they have to go to the simplification? I don't know. They did. It worked. And on top of that, you know, I don't know how well it'll work in the future because one of the downsides of a man-gap scheme is that defenses can scheme to stop it pretty easily if they know it's coming and you have to have better and stronger players than that defense. You know, Luckily, Texas is stronger and had never run gap or man schemes heavily, so West Virginia was pretty thrown off by it, which is why a really good defense like West Virginia got gashed a lot by this Texas run game. It'll be interesting to see how this gap scheme works going forward, seeing as it largely worked due to catching that West Virginia defense off guard and having bigger guys in them. Regardless of all of that, the offensive line did their part against West Virginia, and that bodes well for the future. However, the skill players did not do their part. They did not share their load, and that is really the reason why that offense was so anemic against West Virginia. And it's also why this bye week has been so important. I guess this extended bye week is going to be so important for Texas because they need to get their skill position players ready or and healthy. You've had injuries like Josh Moore. You've had injuries. You've had injuries like Josh Moore, Jordan Whittington, uh, Keontae Keontae Ingram, which I guess is you know with but John Robinson is not as big anymore, and especially Sam Ellinger. This past four games, Sam Ellinger seemed to be dealing with a calf injury, which was affecting his ability to get the ball to the outside of the offense early on. And you can't get heat on the ball or accuracy on the ball at all, especially to the outside, if you can't plant your feet. So 
Texas had to adjust to using middle uh, routes over the middle. You know, it got better as games went on, but it really hurt Texas's efficiency early on in games, which hurt Texas throughout the game. Despite Sam Ellinger not living up to expectations, whether that be due to injury or just an actual regression, the wide receiver position at Texas right now is a problem. It is a big problem. Texas finds itself in a position where Josh Moore is their best deep ball threat, and he is, what, 160, 170, and 6'2", 6'3", and, you know, not the guy who is 6'4", 6'5", and 225, and can run fast? Sure, okay, but that's not what you were, supposed, that's not what you were hoping for at the beginning of the season. I don't need to repeat all the misses Texas had in the past three years, two years, of recruiting, but that is a big reason you're in this position. A lot of misses in wide receiver recruiting. It's killed Texas. And the fact that you don't have these outside wide receivers from recruiting is the reason you're relying on a guy like Tariq Black to turn his entire career around and become a consistent possession wide receiver, which just isn't happening. Again, we saw this these issues with Eagles who had you know a nice four for 43 and touch one touchdown line against West Virginia, but he's still not a reliable downfield threat. He got bullied on a drop, not, not bullied. He completely whiffed on a catch in the end zone where he was wide open and free. He, he went through his hands at him in the face. It is not the first time that's happened. My co-host Darius Terrell has talked about it over and over and over again. He's not a reliable deep threat. Or he gets bullied by guys who are half his size. And Tariq Black, yeah, he had a nice snag on a bullet from Sam Ellinger, but besides that, he's been inconsistent. The saving grace of this offense has been the slot wide receiver, Jake Smith and Jordan Whittington. However, neither of them can stay healthy because you're using them so gosh darn much. Same thing with Josh Moore. And, you know, the fact that and he didn't have a huge game against West Virginia, you know, they didn't target him as much, they didn't use him as much even though he had you know, three catches and a touchdown, I, you know, I think it might be because the coaching staff was trying to slowly work him back in after being injured. But then again, the lack of recruiting, and there was guys like Jalen Waddell and Marvin Mims and, and other guys who they just didn't even take a look at. That's the reason that you're having to play a walk-on as his backup. Andre Coleman has been put in a pretty tough position where he's not given a lot of tools, or the tools he has have been broken, like Troy O'Marier or Jake Smith or Jordan Whittington or Josh Moore, and he doesn't have much behind those guys. I mean, I'm looking at the depth chart right now. The only guy who I think he could really use right now is probably Marcus Washington or maybe Kennedy Lewis. It's a tough position that Texas put themselves in due to lack of recruiting in that position. And because of that, Texas was not able to execute on the game plan they had. I mean, it was a good game plan. It really was. And long-term, I'm a huge fan of it in the direction they took this offense in that game. While it wasn't as effective as it could have been, I think the simplification of the offensive line bolstered the offense, gave them a running game, which allowed them to try to take off the top of the defense with deep passes or even you know mid-range passes. The failures in the game that stopped this offense and made it anemic were from the skill players' lack of execution. Ellinger noodle-arming a ball to a wide-open Brennan Eagles. Or wide receivers just straight-up dropping balls that they should be able to pull in or win out with strength. 
I think if you continue to use this offense using the West Virginia game, it may seem counterintuitive, but it will 100% work in your favor. Tempo run from 10 to 11 personal sets and taking deep shots with outlets underneath. However, again, why did it take until November 4th to figure this out? And will it still work going forward is a question I think that's, that is valid. And I think at the end of the season, Herman is going to have to take a long, hard look at Herb Hand and how much he really trusts him with his offensive line. So I, I really want to finish off this podcast with saying I really feel validated uh, about my takes over the past few weeks. Uh, I could be completely wrong, and if I am, please let me know. Uh, I'm, always, I'm always down to be taking down a peg. But Texas entered and really still is in a stretch of games where they could conceivably win out. And the defense is starting to gel right at the right time. The offense is starting to form an identity, or at least Herman is realizing what he can make work in this offense. And, hey, I guess better late than never, right? Despite all the noise, Herman is on track to keep his job despite how angry the fan base was after the Red River shootout. Now, he's still riding a razor-thin line of lose one game and you're done. It doesn't matter what game it is in the future. If he loses one more game this season, he's likely out. But all he has to do is beat a Kansas State team that is struggling, beat a Kansas team that is one of the worst in the nation, and beat Iowa State at home. And that might be easier said than done. I think if he loses the Big 12 championship, I think he's probably gone, especially if it's to Oklahoma. Although I guess you also have to look at who is available because looking at the landscape right now of college football, it seems like it's Urban Meyer or bust. <laughs> Your two main candidates, PJ Fleck, James Franklin, not doing so hot. Maybe I'm getting on board the Luke Fickle train in Cincinnati. I guess you could try for Chris Peterson. You could try your hand with Brian Harson. I don't think Kyle Shanahan's coming to Austin, and I'm not sold on trying to pay mega money to pull in Mario Cristobal away from Nike. You know, it, it's all up in the air there, but regardless, I think Tom Herman is probably going to be here for another year if you don't get Urban Meyer. That brings you to the press conference that happened this past week where Tom Herman was asked about Urban Meyer and the rumors circulating the program. And first off, let me start off by saying that was a planned question. That was a 100% a planned question. There's no way you can convince me otherwise. Tom Herman probably asked Anwar Richardson to ask that question, or they set it up. I mean, Anwar Richardson got juicy quotes from Tom Herman. You know, I'm talking about it now. It probably helps out the the media a ton. And Tom Herman got to put out a message. The message was that despite all the noise, Herman is on track to keep his job, despite how angry, again, how angry the fan base was after the Red River shootout. and how the rumors circulating around Urban Meyer have hurt his recruiting ability. And despite it seeming like a message that was directed at fans talking about the support he has and to maybe calm down or going after the media for unnamed sources, it was a diatribe for recruits in an attempt to combat negative recruiting going on surrounding his job security. His message was that he is on track to keep his job, the status quo is fine, and that he has support from the fan base and the athletic director. It was a fireside chat of sorts for guys he's trying to recruit and their families. 
And honestly, I know calling out unnamed sources is tired, but unnamed sources can hurt recruiting. Just look at Nick Bonito. Chip Brown's piece around, backed by former strong seniors, convinced Nick Bonito to go to Oklahoma over Texas, giving Texas an issue in the linebacker room. Also, losing Quinn Ewers was, in part, not totally, but in part, due to the chaos surrounding this ability of Texas and coming from articles like these. Now, we're in a bit of a different place with the articles surrounding this ability and the one that Chip Brown put out, but, yes, unnamed sources can hurt recruiting. However, however... This line would be a lot more effective if the unnamed sources were the real reason behind the negative recruiting and not just a symptom of the other things. Hell, I can negatively recruit Texas and I don't need anonymous sources. Take a look at the on-field product, the lack of development in key positions, the past decade of wasted talent, and all the stats that go with that. And with all these recruits getting bombarded with negative recruiting, it forces coaches to try to have to fight it back and make up ground in recruiting rather than get ahead in recruiting or even game plan because they're having to fight all of this all the time. To try to cut off a source of negative recruiting is something that could help. Yes, these unnamed sources and articles may be putting him more behind the eight ball than he could be, and now he can't get ahead. You know what would have helped him not be behind the eight ball in recruiting? not being so cavalier with relationships and recruiting, and evaluating offensive linemen like James Brockmeyer or literally anybody else this cycle, taking notes from other teams that are more successful in recruiting and learning from your failures. You know what would have helped him stop these articles from coming out? Not getting outcoached by TCU and Oklahoma. So at this point, the only way Tom Herman is going to quiet the rumors get recruiting back on track, and cool his seat, is to win and do so convincingly. No diatribe is going to fix any of it until then. At this point, Tom Herman has put himself in a position where it is put up or shut up. I think that's where I'm going to end off, y'all, because my my voice is absolutely killing me. Thank y'all for listening. Uh, This has been... Fourth and five, your Longhorn Nation podcast. I've been your host, Will Bazer. You guys can find me on Twitter at W I L L B A I Z E R. Or you guys can find my other stuff on the Football Brainiacs. That is Texas at the Football Brainiacs.com. And we have other, many other podcasts like this on the Hornscast channel. It's the Hornscast channel on any major podcasting platform out there. On that note, thank you all for listening. We'll see you all next week. Hook them. <laughs>